0: Hello, Jane Ardy.
1: Hi, hi. Uh,
0: we are in Fulham, inside London.
1: Exactly, yep, yep, we're in Fulham, yeah.
0: So you are one of the finest, uh, as I can say, specialist mm-hmm. regarding a very spe- special period.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah, so I work as a specialist um, in 20th century British art, um, which means I work for an auction house. Um, and that means that I basically cover um, Paintings, uh, works on paper and sculpture from 1900 to the present day. Um, so uh, everything from sort of William Nicholson and Sicker at the turn of the century um, through to the pre and post-war period up to uh, contemporary artists like Grayson Perry and Frank Auerbach.
0: So your domain is what I can call a niche, which mm-hmm. means that this is kind of a small domain.
1: Yes. Yeah, definitely. It's... um. It's, it is quite a kind of small domain in that it's just spanning a century, but um, it really is a very, very rich one. Um, I personally love it because I think there's just so much breadth in this one century. You know, you go from really quite traditional pieces such as William Nicholson, who I mentioned earlier, who's really traditional painting style um, and often um, was commissioned to do many society portraits. So we're really seeing kind of, you know, society art at its best. elegant society portraits that have been commissioned to show the status or wealth or the family of a particular sitter. Um, But, you know, going from that, you know, you come into abstraction in the 1950s and 60s, you have the St. Ives group, Um, you move through to the geometry of fear and those sculptures from the post-war period. Uh, Then, you know, you travel all the way up through optical art to... um, sort of more figural pieces, for example, by Auerbach or Kossoff. Um, and you really have the full span, I think, of, you know, really decent chunk of art history within 100 years. Um, and that's why I think it's such an exciting sort of area to work in.
0: And in this uh, 100 uh, years, mm. you see, Jen a lot of contrast between a lot of pieces.
1: Mm. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I would say because you start out in this really traditional um, academic style of teaching, I mean, for example, if you look at the Slade School, um, where was really considered the number one place to learn to draw. There was a huge emphasis on draftsmanship. Um, you have the first crisis of brilliance for people like Orpin um, around the turn of the century. And then just a few years later, you get what Henry Tonks, who was one of the teachers there, terms the second crisis of brilliance. And there you have Nevinson, Carrington, um Mark Gertler, Stanley Spencer, this incredibly talented, concentrated group of people. Um, And from, you know, that really academic grounding with, you know, draftsmanship at its very core, it was very strict there, you know, there was, um, you know, you'd only um, start off, for example, drawing from um, uh, antique models and casts. then you would be allowed to progress onto the life models. Um, But it was very strict and rigorous. And I think, you know, starting from that beginning, you know, you travel all the way through this amazing kind of era, um, when artists, you know, really start to deconstruct the medium, you know, you move away from representation and the, um, shows of the 50s abstract expressionists were brought over from America really just turn the London art world upside down. You have Rothko going to visit Cornwall, you have, um, you know, these artists seeing these enormous, um, canvases and they're, they're seeing how America just does something on a massive scale. Um, for example, you have Richard Smith who goes over to America and is just astounded because he says, you know, everything was bigger over there. The paint tubes, the, uh, the studios, the canvases, everything was enormous. Um, and I think there is so much richness and diversity in this 100 year span. Um,
0: and you are talking also about the context, the history that have uh, mm. that have uh, that took this century.
1: Absolutely, I mean you have two world wars, which were okay. so important for Britain, you know, and the art that came out of that was incredibly powerful. You have, for example, Nevinson in the First World War, who is kind of melding man and machine. You know, he's fighting in the trenches, and he is just so um, he. Um, Oh, actually, no, I'm not sure he was actually fighting, but um, I think he worked as an ambulance driver. Um, But that really informs what he um, sees. You know, he's just struck by the inhumanity of man, and you get these incredibly powerful pieces. And then, of course, you have the Second World War and the sheer kind of, you know, fact of almost an unbelievable atrocity, you know, the Holocaust. Um, And then after that, of course, you have this sort of... um, almost it feels like a void, you know, how can artists fill that? You have Giacometti doing his, you know, incredibly long, elongated, attenuated figures who are striding purposely forward, but they are, you know, reduced to matchsticks really. You know, obviously cast in bronze, but they are long and thin and they are just striding through what feels kind of a post-apocalyptic landscape. Um, And in Britain, of course, you have um, the sculptors that emerged out of that. So for example, Reg Butler, Bernard Meadows, um, Lynn Chadwick, and they all go and exhibit at the 1952 Venice Biennale, and Herbert Reed ter- coins this amazing term of the, the geometry of fear, and it really is, you know, these figures are jagged and, um, sort of, you know, they're mashed up, they are not these beautiful kind of academic things that we would have seen at the turn of the century, they are really, you know, beings that, are made by people who are trying to make sense of this very difficult landscape in a world that has really been sort of turned upside down.
0: So, the world has been turned upside, upside down, as you said, during mm. the last century, in the mm. 20th century. Yeah. And you, you know all these things, but what is your background? You are from Edinburgh.
1: I am from Edinburgh, yes, so um, I went, uh, I studied art at school, um, alongside history and English and a few other things. Uh, I then went to St Andrews University, which is Wills and Kate fame, um, and... I originally went to study history and English, but um, the art history course there was just so fantastic. The professors were so passionate about their courses um, that I ended up switching. Um, My parents did tell me I would never get a job doing just art history, but uh, thankfully that hasn't proved to be the case. Um, And yeah, I really enjoyed it and I really focused there on getting a breadth of... um, experience as opposed to just narrowing down into one specialism. Um, So when I was there, I studied um, the art of Byzantium, um, classicism, um, photography, uh, Russian art, um, American modernism, um, and I also did my uh, dissertation on contemporary photography.
0: So you just, you followed your path and your dreams. So the goal for you was to maybe create an environment that was Mm -hmm. uh, inspiring for you?
1: Yeah I mean I think in a way looking back when you're younger you don't really know what you're doing most (laughs) of the time Um, especially when you go to university you don't have your whole life set out I certainly never thought this is what I would end up doing Um, but I think I always followed you know my parents advice which is really kind of do what you're passionate about even if they weren't always you know uh, 100% you know supportive of the art history thing uh thinking that it really wasn't the most uh, academically rigorous um course which i have to say i disagree with um but yeah i think the kind of the notion of doing what you really love and you believe in and what feels right i think is so important because so many people do you know degrees that only lead to quite mercenary jobs and while of course you know that's great for them I think often you know many people don't really enjoy that um so I would really say that you know I think that doing what you're passionate about really pays dividends in other ways even if you know perhaps your bank balance isn't the healthiest um compared to other people.
0: This is so true Jen. you are Mm telling us that yeah. uh, <laughs> um, you are very useful by, by doing what you really, really want.
1: I think so. I mean, I, I feel as well, you know, enjoyment is so important in your job. You know, they always say, do a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life, <laughs> yes. which I do think is true. I mean, I'm not going to say that I have not worked hard because it is a hard, you know, it's a demanding job at times. But I definitely think that, you know, there is so much truth in that.
0: So... Jane, did you move in London? Because you see in London a great genius because you are from Scotland. So when did you make this move?
1: (laughs) Well, um, I mean, Scotland certainly has lots of its own, you know, amazing museums, galleries, you know, a really rich cultural tradition. Um, For example, Edinburgh has the festival and the Fringe every year, which is just, you know, an incredible arts festival. And, you know, Scotland's history is so rich and the traditions are amazing. And I definitely, you know, if you haven't been to Scotland, I would absolutely recommend it. Everyone is very friendly and um, they'll make you do a dance called a Kaylee, which is absolutely hilarious and you'll have the best time ever. Um, So, you know, it's not that I don't love Scotland, but really the, you know, London is such a great centre for the art world. um, And there are opportunities down here, which you wouldn't necessarily find up there, um, especially for example, for the um, niche that I work in. Um, Although you can be a specialist up in Scotland, um, it would mostly be either in Scottish art or um, in for example, whiskey or things that are really sold mostly in Scotland. So to be a modern British specialist is really kind of unique to London. Um, And yeah, so that's why I'm here basically obviously my parents have been a huge influence on me and, you know, they really do work in what they believe in. They run a music publishing business together um, and it's very much kind of a passion of theirs. Um, They have a sort of really rich catalogue of pieces that they've um, published Um, and I would say, you know, both at school and at university I was really lucky to have amazing teachers, you know, I had a particularly great art teacher at school who, was really, you know, I think probably the most influential person on me when I was at school, um, and you know, at university. I had a wealth of really great professors. So, yeah.
0: And I feel that in this century, in this century, the twentieth and first century, mm-hmm. there is the rise of, of the internet, and people yeah. can share their work. Mm. Um, how do you feel about uh, this?
1: I think it's great I mean I think one of the things that I've noticed is I mean Instagram is obviously a huge platform and I do love that there are a lot of artists out there especially in London who are using it as a platform to share their work um I mean from coming from the kind of specialist auction house side I really do see how hard it is for artists to get established um we speak to a lot who would like to put their work into auction for example but you know there is quite a difficult sort of pathway that artists have to follow. And from what I can see, you know, there are so many hurdles and hoops from them to jump through, that the internet is a great kind of equaliser. Um, you know, you can reach people directly, you can promote your work, you don't necessarily depend on a gallery loving your work and putting on a show for you, you know, they are going to, um, there are going to be so many considerations for them, such as, you know, their established client base who they're going to sell those works to um that I think sort of the internet opening up this new platform is really great um and certainly you know there are definitely a few um kind of artist collectives that I've been looking at recently online who showcase maybe kind of I don't know 20 to 30 um artists and actually all of them are doing really fun things and it's a great way for them to kind of build their platform organically
0: Mm. and In London, actually, Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw that um, a lot of theatres are closed for the moment.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: And I feel that some government, for example, forget that art is something essential for uh, people.
1: Definitely. I mean, I think, um, I mean, you mentioned theatres. Whenever I get to go to the theatre, I'm always amazed and I come away sort of you know saying to my friend wasn't that the most amazing thing you've ever seen and I think that really art is so important you know all forms of art music um you know poetry books uh, drama you know everything really has a very important place and I think it's so important because it can make you feel emotions that otherwise you wouldn't have access to or you wouldn't see that perspective um so I think it is really important I mean I'd love to see you know, the arts industry, all sectors of it kind of bouncing back and um, being, you know, I do think the government is doing a lot to support various industries, whether it is enough, who knows, um, but it would be great to see them kind of coming back and flourishing.
0: And uh, to come back to the 20th century, mm-hmm. you have two examples, two men that you really mm. a- a- idolize. We have Peter Leyen.
1: Yes, yeah, so Peter Lanyon um, is one of my absolute favourite artists. Um, he is a Cornish artist sort of through and through. The, Cornwall was obviously a great centre for the arts. Um, from, I mean, well, really before, around 1900 onwards, you had the Newland um, painters who were down there. And then my in my period, um, you have, it all sort of really starts off with Alfred Wallace, who is a retired mariner. Who's painting on scraps of cardboard and anything you can find uh, down in St. Ives and Christopher Wood and Ben Nicholson happen upon him. And this is sort of one of those sort of magical, mm. mythical art world laws. Um, they find this retired mariner and he's painting. He has no formal um, art instruction, so his um, perspective is completely unique. Um, and he's mostly painting um, ships and Cornish landscapes. Um, And really, so I mean, Cornwall is a huge centre. And later on, um, Peter Lanyon grows up in Cornwall, and he's really the reason. One of the reasons I love him is he's really of the landscape. He, um, his early works, obviously, I mean, for all artists, really, they often um, are, you know, they're learning in a quite academic tradition. They're being taught how to paint and to draw. Uh, But what I really love are his. Uh, gliding paintings later on Um, and he's someone who really kind of was immersed in the landscape so he uh, had a motorbike and he drove you know up and down the roads he recorded all of this Um, he then takes to the skies in gliding and the paintings he produces I think are really unique because I think they are an amazing melding of uh, abstraction and landscape in a way that I'm not really sure that anyone else does or certainly not that I have seen or perhaps um you know, they're just not as good. Um, and the Courtauld did an absolutely incredible um, exhibition of his work a few years ago called Soaring Flight, a painting of the same name from 1960. Um, and I would say, you know, that whole exhibition was incredible. It was really immersive. The um, canvas is often absolutely huge you know and he's painting on this really big scale and it really is you know you can feel the sea spray you can smell the you know you can smell the sea air you can see the cliffs you can see Mm. the um the key, you can see the land you can you can feel everything that he's feeling and it really feels as though it's a kind of a suspend a suspension of sort of space and time in a way because it is this you know it is a feeling and an experience put down onto canvas and for me one of the things i really love about art are the fact that you can look at a painting and you can just get completely absorbed in it and i think that for you know that's what lanyon does he takes an experience when gliding through the air and he puts it onto canvas and you can look at those and really feel you know that melding of both labs landscape and abstraction you know there's this illusion of kind of sea and sky and it all goes onto the canvas um And so that really, for me, is why I love him so much because he really captures that in a very unique way.
0: And concerning the Glinding uh, painting, Mm. I saw some of them on the internet. Oh, yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: there is a kind of mystery because... And my question Mm. is, for you, uh, does art need to be understood because there is some artist that Mm. makes some stuff yeah, that is kind of abstract, but people, the the audience, doesn't mm. necessarily uh, understand.
1: No, I mean, I d- I definitely agree with you. I don't think that art has to be understood at all. Um, I love the fact that you can just experience it. I mean, one of actually. I would say the best museum I have ever been to. And I know that is a hugely big statement, but the best museum I've ever been to was in Japan. Um, And it was the Chichu Art Museum on Naoshima Island. And it was incredible. And one of the things I loved about it was that um, the building was designed by Tadao Ando. Um, who's a Japanese architect and it was so beautiful. The whole thing was just an immersive experience from one room to the next. Um, It was all polished concrete and beautiful angles and you know individually tiled mosaic floors and it was very much you know, they only had three exhibits there. They had a beautiful room of um, Monet waterlilies um with this gorgeous natural light coming in. Um very reminiscent of the orangerie in Paris where they um yes. yeah, where they uh show his you know his beautiful water lily canvases. Um so that they, they had that, that was one. They had um some light um displays by God, can I remember the name? Um, I ha- might have to come back to that. And, um, and then they had another big sculpture in one room. And, um, two of the artists, were artists I'd never come across before, obviously I was very familiar with the Monets, um, but it was an incredible kind of aesthetic experience. And it was, you know, these were definitely two artists that I had never come across before. I really didn't know anything about them, but it was such a kind of powerful experience. I mean, to be honest, I never wanted to leave. My friends had to drag me away. Um... And yeah, so, but that was really amazing. So I really don't think you have to understand it at all. And maybe sometimes it's better not not to try, but just to, you know, sometimes I feel like gallery guides and things on the walls can make you feel like you really have to read them. And that's all part of going to a gallery. But actually, um, I think that, you know, just the act of looking is, is that is enough in itself.
0: Yeah. So yeah. In Paris, in the middle of Paris, mm. there is the Musée of l'Orangerie. Yes. Yeah. And you just talk about the, the free exhibition in yeah. your favorite museum in Japan.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Free exhibition be- mean that they are temporary.
1: Um. So actually, I'd have to check, but I think they have been there for a very long time. And I think because it's on the island, it is a destination in itself. And people obviously don't stay there, although I'm, I would love to for a very long time. Um. It's, um, so yeah, I think they're just three permanent exhibitions there basically. Because I mean, for example, one of them, so I think it's Walter de Maria. That was the big sculpture um, in this atrium. And it is a huge polished marble sphere, uh, probably as high as this room. Uh, So getting it in and out would be incredibly difficult. Uh, And I think they're just permanent there. Yeah.
0: Because I think that the fact that Uh, something is um limited in time makes Mm -hmm. it more unique so that's why some artists for example plays with uh times
1: definitely yes i mean i think the temporal nature is something that is really lovely i mean for example if you have artists like anthony gormley who do for example installations um and commissions across the uk um i'm thinking particularly for example of his um sculptures on the beach um he obviously works really with the human form and his own form mostly um and i think there's something really lovely in that transient nature of them
0: and there is also banksy which is a british artist indeed
1: yes yeah
0: because for example his uh, street art in the in the Mm streets are temporary because Mm. some people are going to erase them or maybe um the, well, mostly the they try
1: to sell them uh they're going so, to cut the the wall uh, well, yeah they chisel them off and then you know you'll find them being offered somewhere it's all, i don't know i mean it's he is a fascinating artist i love the way he works um you know he has such cachet nowadays um and you know i can totally see why people love him so much um he's really recognizable and you know I think people love the fact that he's, you know, a slightly anarchic figure who doesn't really care, you know, what the establishment thinks. He'll just pop up overnight and do his um, his own work, and I think that's really amazing. Mm.
0: Because he doesn't sh- show his face, so it exactly. can be everyone. Yeah, definitely, mm. yeah. Concerning the arts, mm-hmm. even if it's a totally subjective uh, mm-hmm. topics, do you think that art do- does automatically improve uh, with time?
1: Um, when you say improved, do you mean um, the price going up or do you mean the actual understanding of the
0: artwork? I mean the technique and the quality of, um, of the pieces.
1: That is a very good question. Um, I mean, it's so hard. Obviously, you have this huge kind of canon of, you know, all of art history. I mean, I don't know. Do you find better draftsmen than da Vinci or Michelangelo or better sculptors than Michelangelo? You know, I'm not sure if you do, but I think that the continuum is so rich and so interesting that I think, you know, so many artists are putting their own spin onto things, they're creating beautiful artworks in their own right. And I think that, you know, you can't view all of, you know, say, the past 500 years of Western art uh, in just one continuous kind of, we're always improving, we're getting better. Though, you know, you can't really impose a linear structure on it like that. Um, But I think that it's amazing that artists of the day can look back to that and take inspiration as they always do. Um, And definitely, you know, it's exciting to see what artists are doing today. Um, You know, for example, Grayson Perry is, you know, um, an amazing... Artist who works mostly with ceramics and that's really quite a, you know, traditionally thought of as decorative um, or craft um, sort of, um, you know, medium to be working with. Um, So I think that it's amazing what people are doing today and, you know, there's real richness um, in the variety.
0: And I think that the facts to not take anything for granted is very important because if mm. uh, there is nobody makes art, there is no art. So there is no improvement. So
1: Yeah, and I mean, actually, I think that one of the things I really loved over lockdown was Grayson Perry did this fantastic um, show on Channel 4 called Grayson Perry's Art Club, which was one of my highlights of lockdown. It I really found it such a tonic. Um, and it was amazing because what I loved about it was he got normal people to do art and send it in. And you'd get really lovely things. Um, Like I remember, for example, there was a blind woman who had very restricted vision, but did a really lovely drawing. And he highlighted that. And it was just so nice to see that, you know, it's, you know, people who perhaps hadn't felt necessarily like they can engage with art before um, were really being sort of drawn into the show in an amazing way.
0: You have also a second inspiration Mm-hmm. That uh, made the person you are today is uh, Edouard Bura.
1: Yes, so um, he is another one of my favourite artists from the period I work in. Um, he is really sort of quite strange and fantastical, the pieces he makes. He worked primarily in watercolour because he um, was sort of physically, sort of really quite ill, and for example, couldn't really hold a, um, you know, couldn't work with oils much because it was heavier to work with. Um, But he does these incredibly intense um, watercolour paintings. Um, They vary in size. You might have them sort of this size or a bit bigger. Um, But he does everything from sort of these rather strange still lives to like really kind of beautiful um, uh, arrangements of flowers and fruit, for example. Um, He went to Harlem in around the 1930s and he does these incredible... um, Images of the Harlem nightlife, and you know, he loved to be, um, you know, reveling in this kind of slightly seedy underside of um, popular culture at the time. And there's a real edge to a lot of his paintings, um, that I think would surprise people. I mean, he clearly had an incredibly fertile imagination, um, and his paintings really attest to that. And I think, um, you know, so many of the characters in his pieces are quite strange and wonderful and then later on in his career he moves to painting these really beautiful um uh landscapes of the English countryside and often it's a commentary on how that landscape is being eroded or damaged um but they are in themselves beautiful quite tranquil but sometimes quite disturbing pieces as well um and he's really someone that I think you know, outside the mainstream, the big names of modern British art you might not necessarily have heard of. I mean, he commands really great prices at auction, but um, he is really someone I think, you know, should be wider known. Um, yeah.
0: So as you said, some pieces of art can be damaged and they can be lost or mm. it can be taken away. Yeah. So uh, now today we have digital and mm-hmm. paintings.
1: Yes. Yeah. So yeah I mean for example David Hockney does a lot of drawings on his iPad um which have you know <laughs> lovely quality in themselves I mean for me I think there is something still so lovely about the physical artwork um you know often I think in this digital age you never really see something until you see it in the flesh um and you know paintings can have a power in the flesh that you just can't get on a screen um, So whilst I think it's great that artists experiment and work with these new mediums, I mean, speaking as a 20th century British art specialist, you know, I am slightly biased, but I do love, you know, the more, the slightly more traditional, um, as opposed to the sort of very contemporary. um, Yes, because
0: you're focused on the 20th century so mm. back then there were no tablets no iPads,
1: exactly yeah i mean it's really interesting because for example David Hockney has always been at the forefront of technology um and kind of innovating as an artist. And for example, he used to fax artworks, you know, he'd used to fax them from one studio to another. And, you know, he was really playing with this new medium, you know, most people wouldn't have thought that a fax machine was something you could do art with, but he did. And I think there was one exhibition in which he faxed an entire series of something like 72 drawings from one location to another. And I mean, isn't that amazing? It's just so innovative
0: before uh, this uh, worldwide lockdown you used mm. to go to see exhibition
1: yes yep uh yeah i mean i am a prolific museum goer and i've been whenever i go to any city i try and go and see basically every single exhibition possible i think when i went to new york a couple of years ago i managed to fit in eight exhibitions or museums in about 10 days which is quite a lot but it was really good um and There are a few things, I mean, lots of things in London that I've seen recently, which I loved. Um, One thing that I would really recommend for anyone visiting London is the Tate's Permanent Exhibition. So Tate Britain, um, as opposed to Tate Modern. Um, They have an amazing um, 500 years of British art um, and it covers everything from the Cholmondeley Twins um, to Constable to Op Art to very contemporary pieces. And I think that it is really kind of one of those gems. I mean, I think most people in London, while they will go and see exhibitions, um, they don't always necessarily go to the permanent exhibitions. You know, people, my friends might say, oh, I've, you know, they've been to lots of exhibitions, but they've never actually been to the National Gallery, um, which is a gem in itself, of course. Um And I think sometimes, you know, we have this ever revolving number of wonderful exhibitions in London that are put on by, you know, these incredible institutions that we have here. But I think also the permanent exhibitions sometimes, you know, for all the glitter and fanfare of the other ones, sometimes get overlooked. So the Tate um, Britain's walkthrough of British art, I think, is really fantastic, really well curated and gives you an amazing survey of how things have changed um, in the past 500 years. Um, and there was another exhibition that I've seen, um, I think it was maybe a year or a couple of years ago, which really, I thought was incredible. Again, at Tate Britain, there is a theme here. I think it's a fantastic, um, gallery. Um, did an incredible, um, exhibition of the paintings of Edward Burne Jones, paintings and drawings. And he, um, was a Victorian artist and just incredibly talented and it was really a stunning exhibition. Um, We had everything from his early pen and ink drawings that are so meticulous and detailed. Um, He was really kind of um, inspired by um, sort of myths and legends and things like that so you see lots of classical um, characters in his paintings Um, and one of my favourite pieces was um, the Briar Rose um, series. And they had them all in one room. I think there were four panels, really long. I mean, several metres each. And it was all about um, the sort of Briar Rose series was all based around Sleeping Beauty. Uh, locked in the um, castle as all of the roses grew around it and it was absolutely incredible they had the text um, sort of in gold underneath the paintings and it was really just spellbinding I could have stayed in there for hours Um, so that was sort of one of the best I've seen
0: recently and Jen have you seen an exposition in London in which there is um, uh, uh, photos of uh, school classes on the wall, and it, it's very impressive. We can see all the the classes of London.
1: Oh, I don't think I've seen that. Where where was that?
0: I don't remember the okay. name. It was <laughs> back in February.
1: February. I don't think I did, actually. No, but I'll have to look it up.
0: <laughs> and this is very funny because in England, uh, I don't know if, if it's the same everywhere, but the teacher used to be in the center of the photos.
1: Oh, really? Okay, yeah. I wonder if that was... Yeah, I wonder why that was on. That sounds like a really good exhibition, though.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Thanks to- thanks to you so much.
1: Great. Well, it was great to-